Recording in progress. This will be the second part of my talk on the subject of Yeshua's coming kingdom. The first part that I gave on Thursday, I understand, will be posted online shortly. And this part will be dealing with the aspects of Yeshua's return. And I'd like to begin with a hymn I found in an old hymn book dated 1858 called Hymns of the Ages. And number 93 is entitled Rise, Glorious Conqueror, Rise. These are type of hymns that you don't find in modern hymn books because they don't uh, support the popular I current idea of rapture of the church. They teach that Christians will reign on earth. Uh, but the words are very scriptural and, and I think inspiring and serve as a good introduction to what the Bible teaches of Yeshua's return. Rise, glorious conqueror, rise into thy native skies, assume thy right, and where in many a fold the clouds are backward rolled, pass through those gates of gold and reign in light. Victor or death in hell, Cherubic legions swell the radiant train. Praises all heaven inspire, each angel sweeps his lyre and waves his wings of fire, thou lamb once slain. Enter, incarnate God, no feet but thine have trod the serpent down. Blow the full trumpet blow, wider yon, yon portals throw. Savior, triumphant, go and take thy crown. Lion of Judah, hail, and let thy name prevail from age to age. Lord of the rolling years, claim for thine own the spheres, for thou hast bought with tears this thine heritage. Yet who are these behind? In numbers more than mine can counter say. Clothed in immortal stoles, illumining the whole the poles, a galaxy of souls in white array. And then was heard afar, star answering to star. Lo, these have come, followers of him who gave his life, their lives to save. And now their palms they wave in their new home. Amen. Amen. I thought it was quite a, quite a good hymn. And what is the new home of the saints where Yeshua's followers will wave their palm branches? It is the kingdom of Elohim on earth. And we're now going to learn more about Yeshua's return to set up that messianic stage of the earthly everlasting kingdom of Elohim. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, during the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior gave instructions on many things related to the kingdom of Elohim. On the subject of prayer, he gave a, a, he gave a clear example of what the focus of our prayer life ought to be. Reading in Matthew 6, 9, after this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, the kingdom of Elohim figured prominently in Yeshua's ministry and prayer life as it should in ours. The kingdom of Elohim was something that we were to look for, pray for, and live for. As Christians, we should understand all we can about Yeshua's kingdom and reign. Yet today there's a great deal of confusion 
about that second coming. Millions of books are being published by popular authors such as Hal Lindsey, promoting a widely held theory known as dispensationalism, also called futurism. This lecture endeavors to expose the fallacies of that system and against this foil of fabrication and falsehood to point out what the scripture does teach about events at the close of this age and our Savior's second coming. When our Savior appointed, appointed time on earth was fulfilled, we read his final words of admonition to the apostles, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen by them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of Elohim. Acts 1 verse 3. Yes, the kingdom of Elohim is of great importance and yet a great mystery, for there must have been a great many questions on their minds, as Christians also have today. What is that kingdom? When does it come? How will it be set up? Our Savior gave us useful clues to these questions in his final discourse with his disciples. We read on. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Verse 6, we too often focus on the when of the kingdom of Elohim, trying to set dates for the return of our Savior, some even trying to predict the very day and hour. It is those who inquire about such matters that Yeshua's reply is directed. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, verse 7. Of the where, why, when, and how, the date, the when factor, is the one thing we're told we wouldn't know concerning Yeshua's return. In fact, the really important question is not what date the king is coming, but what developments will mark his return. Not when he will come, but what manner will be his return. Millions of Christians today are being sadly misled concerning things they ought to know about Yeshua's second coming. Yeshua continued his discourse with the disciples by giving them the Great Commission. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It is one of our marks today as Yah's new covenant Israel, that we have literally fulfilled this prophecy. We are a physical, spiritual people. We read on, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. Acts 1 verse 9. The promise of Yeshua's return to this earth is given in the next verse. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men in white apparel who also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Yeshua who is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1, verses 10 and 11. This important promise of Yeshua's return to earth contains a prophecy. We're factually told that our Messiah's ascension will be identical in all respects with his return. Therefore, if we can verify key aspects of his ascension 2,000 years ago, we can also verify the precise manner of his return and learn much about final events at the close of this age. Based upon this, let's list some factors that we may be sure of concerning Yeshua's second coming. We will prove first that Yeshua's return is not secret or silent. Second, it is only one stage, not two separate stages. Third, it will be after trial and tribulation, not before it. 
And fourth, it is not only a heavenly rain, but includes an earthly rain as well. Let's take a closer look at these points one at a time. The first aspect of Yeshua's return is that it's neither secret nor silent. This should be apparent for his ascension was clearly both visible and audible. You are all probably familiar with the popular teaching today of a secret rapture of the church. This theory proposes that our Messiah will return silently and stealthily. We often picture a thief in the night as tiptoeing in the dark, flashlight in hand, not making the least little sound, and disturbing no one. Is this an accurate portrayal of Yeshua's return? In answer to these theories, we first point out that the return of Yeshua will not overtake Christians as a thief in the night. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, we read, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that they, that day should overtake you as a thief. The clear implication is that only those in darkness, the unbelieving world, will be overtaken as a thief. The logical next question to ask, what exactly does scripture mean by a thief in the night? At the time the Bible was written, the Bible reflected, the phrase reflected the culture of the time, which was much different than our own. Many of you perhaps read as children the story of Alibaba and the 40 thieves. In early times, thieves traveled in bands. They'd sweep into a town at dusk, disarm the authorities and pillage and rape at will. When dawn arrived, the band would sweep out of town early before neighboring authorities could arrive to help. As you can see, the term thief in the night conjured up a much different vision in the minds of first century Christians than it does today. This may help to explain what Peter meant in 2 Peter 3.10 when he wrote, The day of Yeshua will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are in shall be burned up. There is nothing either secret or silent in Peter's description of Yeshua's return. Instead, a visible and noisy cataclysm of the heavens and the earth is graphically portrayed. As a second witness to the visible and noisy character of the second coming, Acts 2.20 says, Before that great and notable day of Yeshua come, wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, fire, blood, vapor of smoke, sun darkened, moon to blood. A third witness, Matthew, assures us there will be nothing secret about his return. He writes, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, as lightning, the sun and moon darkened, the stars fall from heaven, powers of the heavens shaken, and a great sound of a trumpet. One might safely say that even the blind, deaf, and dumb will be aware of the cataclysm <laughs> accompanying our Messiah's return. Is that return secret and silent? No, it is uniformly described in the scriptures as being both visible and noisy. We have still additional evidence that the return of Yeshua will be far from secret or silent. Heavenly choirs will greet his arrival on earth. In fact, there appears to be quite a number of choirs involved. Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 tell us of a heavenly choir composed of the 24 elders. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to Elohim by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests unto our Elohim and we shall reign on the earth. 
Revelation 15 verse 3 tells us that another choir composed of victorious saints without number will sing the Song of Moses, which is printed out for us in our Bibles in Exodus 15 verses 1 to 9. A choir will also be singing the Song of the Lamb, according to Revelation 15 verse 3. Yet another choir composed of the 144,000 redeemed is spoken of in Revelation 14 verse 3. Singing, we're told, a new song. In addition to all that, I believe others of us will be singing from the book of Psalms, just like the early Hebrew church did in their worship. And the picture we're given is that upon Yeshua's return, the world will be filled with loud, loud songs of praise and joy among both the angels and Yeshua's followers. So Christians will not sneak away quietly when Yeshua returns. And I invite you to join with the choirs in heaven and earth on that glorious day of his appearing. The second aspect of Yeshua's return is that there's only one return, not two stages, separated by a three and a half to seven year period, as is often taught today. In the New Testament scriptures, we find three terms which are used in connection with the second coming of Yeshua. These terms in Greek with their English equivalents are epiphania, referring to Yeshua's advent, his coming, parousia, meaning presence, and apocalypsis, meaning revelation. Just because three terms are used in the scripture does not mean that there are three separate comings, three separate returns of Yeshua. The Bible used all three terms to describe various aspects of the one return of Yeshua to this earth. However, with the rise of modernistic futurism in the 19th century, popular theology began to divide these terms up as if they were speaking of different events in order to create at least two separate returns of Yeshua. Here's how two 19th century theologians, Edward Irving and John Nelson Darby, pictured Yeshua's return. Irving, founder of the Catholic Apostolic Church, believed that wherever the New Testament Greek text used the word epiphania, meaning advent, he was speaking of the first stage of Yeshua's return. Similarly, wherever occurred the Greek term parousia, meaning presence, and apocalypsis, meaning revelation, this was speaking of the second stage of the return. Interestingly enough, however, John Nelson Darby, founder of the Plymouth Brethren, and numerous offshoots, including the Raven Brethren, from whom we bought our church building from in 1981, saw things quite differently, in fact, exactly opposite. Darby was equally sure that the parousia, or presence, was the first stage of Yeshua's return, the epiphany, or advent, the second stage, and he equated the revelation with the epiphany. Quite a contradiction between two men, both pastor leaders who are looked upon by believers in a pre-tribulation rapture as the godfathers of their movement. Why the contradiction? Well, let's try to make an assumption that Yeshua's return is in actual fact two stages. Give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. What I want to do now is determine which of those three terms apply to which stage of Yeshua's supposed return. Edward Irving and John Nelson Darby obviously couldn't figure it out. First, let's examine some places in the scripture where the Greek word epiphany appears and determine for ourselves to which of the two stages of Yeshua's coming the word of refers. 
In 1 Timothy 6.14 we read, Keep this precept unspotted, irreprehensible, unto the advent, epiphania, of Yeshua Jesus Christ. Because this is addressed to Timothy, living in the first century, and he was therefore obviously not someone who lived after the rapture of the church, this word epiphania must refer to the first stage of Yeshua's coming. But wait, look at another verse. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 tells us that this time will be unveiled the lawless one whom Yeshua will dispatch with the spirit of his mouth and discard by his advent. There's that word epiphania again, translated advent. But according to this verse, the lawless one, the man of sin, will be destroyed by Yeshua at his return. That is something dispensationalists say will occur at the second stage of Yeshua's return, not at the time of the first stage. The man of sin won't even be revealed at the time of the secret rapture, they say. So take your pick. The epiphany could be referring to either the first or second stage of Yeshua's return, or perhaps this actually proves there's really not two different <laughs> stages after all. Now let's go on to the second of our three terms, parousia, meaning Yeshua's presence, and see to ourselves which of the two purported stages of Yeshua's coming it refers. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, the word appears where we read, For this we say unto you by the word of Yeshua, that we who are alive and remain unto the presence, parousia, shall not precede them who are asleep. For Yeshua himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of Elohim, and the dead in Yeshua shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet Yeshua in the air. So shall we ever be with Yeshua. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And by now I'm sure you've realized this is referring to the so-called rapture of the church. The phrase snatched away or caught up is synonymous with the word rapture. This then is clearly the first stage, the coming in the clouds. But let's look at another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. In front of our Elohim and Father, in the presence, parousia, of our Lord Yeshua with all his saints. Here the parousia is spoken of in connection with the saints. According to Schofield and other leading futurists, the word saints refer to people who are converted to Yeshua after the rapture. According to them, there are no saints living now because these are people who will greet Yeshua at the second stage of his coming, his revelation. So again, we have a contradiction in terms. Either the Bible is seriously mixed up or else a two-stage coming theory is fraudulent. It simply does not fit what the scriptures say about Yeshua's coming. Let's give ourselves one more try at it. The third term used in connection with Yeshua's return is apocalypsis, meaning revelation. Since both Irving and Darby in the 19th century agreed that the revelation was a second stage of his return, you'd think our work would be easy. In 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 7, it says, So that you are not deficient in any grace, awaiting the unveiling, apocalypsis, of Yeshua who shall also confirm unto you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Yeshua. Here the phrase day of our Lord Yeshua is used in the context of the unveiling or revelation. The Schofield Bible states that wherever the phrase day of Christ, they say, or day of our Lord Jesus Christ appears, it refers to the first stage 
of the return. Conversely, the phrase day of the Lord, they say, always refers to the second stage. Therefore, the passage must refer to the rapture of the church, in contradiction to both Irving and Darby, who claim the apocalypse or revelation could only represent the second stage. And you'll find it's the hallmark of the futurist system that there are all sorts of massive contradictions amongst various authors. Another example of apocalypsis is found in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. It says that the unveiling apocalypsis of Yeshua from heaven with his powerful messengers in flaming fire dealing out vengeance to those who are not acquainted with Elohim. Even the Schofield Bible is forced to admit that the apocalypsis or revelation must be related here to the last stage of Yeshua's coming. So again, apocalypsis could refer to either or both of the two stages of Yeshua's return. Now to put the icing on the cake, so to speak, here is a passage in which all three terms are found in the same passage referring to the same return. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 reads, Then will be unveiled, apocalypsis, the lawless one, whom the Lord Yeshua will discard by the advent, epiphania, of his presence, parousia. So it should be clear by now that all three terms do indeed refer to the same return of Yeshua, and it must be therefore a one-stage event, not two or three, as the futurists claim. The day of the Lord is the same as the day of Christ, as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Modern futurism efforts to divide up the Bible synonyms into separate events is contradictory to the scriptures. The third aspect of Yeshua's return is the time of its occurrence after the tribulation, not before it. It should be clear that Yeshua's own ascension occurred only after his own trials and tribulations were over. So why should we be removed prior to the tribulation ourselves? Yeshua was not ruptured, was not raptured before his arrest, trial, scourging, and crucifixion. Similarly, thousands and perhaps millions of his followers have suffered martyrdom without rapture as well. There is no basis for such a teaching as a pre-tribulation rapture of Yeshua's followers to heaven. Even the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah described the return of the Messiah in graphic detail in chapter 2, verse 15. I like the Knox translation. A day of vengeance, a day of strain and stress, a day of ransack and ruin is not at all a secret rapture. Associations with tribulation are a frequent theme in Bible passages discussing, discussing Yeshua's return. Despite that fact, rapture posters are a popular seller in Christian bookstores. While Christians are secretly whisked off to heaven, driverless cars smash, planes crash, multitudes are reported missing as disaster strikes earth. Actor Nicolas Cage starred in the popular Left Behind movies produced a few years ago. I think you can find them on the internet is the stuff that suspense and horror movies are made of and catches the public's fancy. A typical story is in the home of Mr. Mr. John Q. Christian. He wakes up one morning to find his wife missing in bed. Where could she be? After waiting patiently for some time, he dresses quickly and enters his daughter's room to find her missing also. Panic seizes him and he searches the house in vain for the missing ones. In in, fact, in fear that some evil is befalling them, he visits a neighbor to see if she has seen anything. She has. Her name is maid has disappeared without a word and without a trace in the midst of doing her chores. As they gather in the kitchen, another 
neighbor arrives to tell his own story of missing ones. And all over towns across America and the Christian world, a similar story occurs. Missing loved ones, grief and panic, have stricken family after family. No one has seen them go. Where have they all gone? Everywhere the event is big news. A few finally realize what has happened. The church has been raptured. It is a very emotional scenario. But is it scriptural? To answer that, let's look at the end time order events detailed in Matthew 24. In verse 21 we read, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Some of the characteristics of the tribulation are detailed for us in verse 9 through 12. Here, in a nutshell, is what our Savior warns the Christian church about the tribulation. They shall deliver you up to kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Many shall be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. False prophets shall rise and deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Following this tribulation warning, Yeshua states, But he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Surviving alive to the end of the age will not be a rapture picnic, but will require a lot of perseverance and endurance. The message that we are to preach and teach is, is summed up in the next verse, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The true message of the end times could be called the kingdom gospel, and it might be termed a true survival message. Inherent within it is not only the proclamation of the return of Yeshua, establishment of his earthly kingdom in power and majesty, but also a call for Yah's people to persevere and endure the present tribulation with the bright hope of the age to come. The Bible teaches no such thing as a removal or rapture of the Christians from the earth prior to tribulation. Instead, we're told that Yeshua's return will be immediately after the tribulation. Matthew 24, 29 says, immediately after the tribulation, they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Yeshua would bring rest from the trouble and tribulation by his return. In fact, the Apostle Paul actually referred to Yeshua's return as our rest from tribulation. In his important chapter on the second coming, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, To you who are troubled, rest with us, when Yeshua shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The Bible tells us that our escape from tribulation is not through a rapture to heaven, but through the return of Yeshua with his army of angels. In the next verses, the apostle tells us the heavenly army will be coming to destroy and remove the wicked. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not Elohim, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Yeshua, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction for the presence of Yeshua and from the glory of his power. Ironically, instead of a removal of the Christian church, the Bible is telling us there will be a removal of the wicked themselves, a rapture of the wicked. Returning to Matthew's account, chapter 24, verses 37 to 39, he tells us that just as the flood waters in Noah's day came and took them all, the wicked, away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, just as in Noah's day the wicked were destroyed and the righteous remained to carry on civilization, so after the tribulation the wicked shall be removed and the righteous shall remain to flourish in the kingdom of Elohim on earth. 
There is an exact correlation of events between Noah's day and Yeshua's return. The last of our four aspects of Yeshua's return is an earthly reign, not a heavenly reign. Just as after his ascension from the dead, Yeshua spent 40 days more on earth teaching and fellowshipping with his disciples, so too does the Bible speak of a symbolic 1,000 year period of fellowship with Yeshua following his return. But in the ages to come, we'll be told that it's a kingdom that shall have no end. Unfortunately, some religionists attempt to force into the Bible a teaching about a secret removal of the Christians to heaven to reign. Here's how they sometimes read into a passage by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Yeshua in the air and go to heaven, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But the passage doesn't say that because the words go to heaven have been added to make it seem like a rapture to heaven. There's no mention of anyone going to heaven. The passage really reads, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet Yeshua in the air, so shall we ever be with Yeshua. Just as in Yeshua's ascension to heaven, a cloud came down and took him away, so he will return to this earth with clouds which will envelop those Christians who go to meet him whether the going will be a physical or spiritual means. The key to understanding this is found in the verb to meet. The Greek word used by Paul here is apentesis, a word loaded with meaning that is not obvious in our English translations. It is a word used in ancient times to describe the actions of an official welcoming delegation that had been sent to meet a visiting dignitary it literally means to meet and return with. It is customary even today for mayors and other elected officials to meet the president or other dignitaries at the airport to welcome him and to escort him. The word apentesis is used in three other New Testament passages. In Matthew 25, verses 1 to 6, it speaks of the ten virgins who went forth to meet the bridegroom. It was common for the wedding party to escort the bridegroom to the bride. John 12, 12, verse 13 speaks of Yeshua's triumphal entry to Jerusalem, popularly known as Palm Sunday. This was a prophetic type of Yeshua's second coming. The people took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him at Pentesis. Yeshua did not escort the people back to Bethany with him. No, the people escorted Yeshua into Jerusalem. And finally, Acts 28, verse 15 speaks of Paul's journey to Rome as a prisoner. When the Christians in Rome heard that Paul was coming, they came to meet Apentesis, as us as far as Appi Forum, which was 43 miles away. They treated him as a VIP, and they served as an escort. We can conclude that Paul was not teaching that Christians would return to heaven with Yeshua, but that Christians would form Messiah's escort back to earth. Nowhere either in this passage in 1 Thessalonians or in the entire Bible does the phrase go to heaven appear, in spite of the much popular preaching on that subject. Ministers depart from scripture to give pulpit stories of people who supposedly died, went to heaven, and returned to tell all about it. Little is said about the frequent contradictions between their accounts of heaven. Roman Catholic accounts love to tell about St. Peter at the gates, but Protestants who supposedly went to heaven don't seem to 
have remembered seeing St. Peter there at all. <laughs> Nonsense goes on and on. Again, neither the phrase go to heaven nor the word rapture ever appear in the pages of scripture. Instead, the Bible informs us in Revelation 5, verse 10, and has made us unto our Elohim kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Amen. Nothing could be stated any plainer. Thus yeah. rejected by the modern church and their rapture doctrine. The Old Testament proclaims an earthly reign for Yah's people. For we read in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens, even the heavens, are Yeshua's, but the earth he hath given to the children of men. Hallelujah. Returning to the Apostle Matthew's account in chapter 21, he prophesies in verse 43 of the Jewish people, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of Elohim shall be given to you which shall be taken from you Jews and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Mm. Aside from the fact this teaches that a Christian people will inherit the kingdom and reign and rule on the earth, not the unbelieving Jews. Notice this, a nation is not something that is in outer space somewhere. A nation indicates something terrestrial and therefore on this earth. New Jerusalem, the kingdom of Elohim, is symbolically in heaven now in the person of the king, Yeshua, but upon his return, we're told, ascends from heaven to this earth. And so Revelation 3.12 speaks of the city of my Elohim, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven. Matthew exalts these words from perhaps Yeshua's most important prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. These words from Matthew 6.10 are from what is known as the Lord's Prayer, properly called. Yeshua told us in verse 9, after this manner, therefore pray ye. So do each of us communicate these truths to others and pray for the coming of Yeshua's kingdom on earth? Do we proclaim that Yeshua is coming to bring rest to those weary in tribulation, to cleanse the earth of all things that offend, to bring judgment on them that do iniquity, and to reign in a kingdom on earth that shall never end? This gospel of the kingdom shall be, shall be proclaimed in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. Matthew 24, 14. So Christ's return is not secret or silent, not two separate stages, after the tribulation, not before, and to reign on earth. The first three of these four points are commonly known as historic post-tribulationism. What this means is that we see a steady progression of fulfilled prophecy throughout history, instead of pushing most things off into the dim distant future after a so-called rapture. Secondly, and just as importantly, we foresee a return of Yeshua after a great tribulation. Historic post-tribulationists are usually called historicists for short, and needless to say, we are firmly historicists, not dispensational futurists. To sum up, we have seen that Yeshua's return is visible, vibrant, and even noisy. The wicked are removed, the righteous remain, and the kingdom of Elohim is established on earth. This is the teaching of the scriptures. I like the Knox translation of Revelation 5.10, which we previously quoted in the King James Version. Knox translates it, Thou hast made us a royal race of priests to serve Elohim, and we shall reign as kings over the earth. Even so, come quickly, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. And I'd like to close by reading a hymn from a 
another old Methodist Episcopal hymnal, hymnal in my library, dated 1869, called Hymns for the Use of the Methodist Episcopal Church. The hymn's title is The Song of Jubilee, hymn number 104. The return of Yeshua was often referred to as the Earth's Jubilee by Christians in past centuries because it will be a time when God's divine law and the year of Jubilee, the year of release from debt and suffering, will be firmly, finally, here on Earth fulfilled. Beautiful hymns like this have been removed from our modern church hymnals because the old hymns proclaim the principles of divine law and an earthly reign of Yeshua with his believing people. Today, all you see is go to heaven theology and pie in the sky when you die. This hymn reads, Hark the song of Jubilee, loud as mighty thunders roar, o'er the fullness of the sea when it breaks upon the shore. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent shall reign. Hallelujah, let the word echo round the earth and main. Hallelujah, hark the sound from the center to the skies, wakes above, beneath, around all creation's harmonies. See Yahuwah's banners furled, sheathed his sword, he speaks tis done, and the kingdoms of this world are the kingdom of his son. He shall reign from pole to pole with illimitable sway. He shall reign when like a scroll yonder heavens have passed away. Then the end, beneath his rod, man's last enemy shall fall. Hallelujah, Christ in God, God in Christ is all in all. Amen. What a wonderful message that is, that Yeshua shall reign on earth from pole to pole, and the kingdoms of this earth shall become the kingdom of his Son. And we look forward to that day when we all shall, shall reign and rule with him in that messianic kingdom here on planet earth. Amen. Amen. Are there any questions? <laughs>